Well, thanks very much, David. If anybody can hear, let me know, and I'm happy to pick up this microphone. Um, I'll try to shout loud enough where maybe you can. Um, it's a privilege to, to be here this morning um, with my longtime dear friend, Jim Compsonman, who is providing great leadership for this organization. And it's not my first time to be here. I know the uh, makeup of the audience, and uh, thank you for your great support and your commitment to America and to what's good about uh, Washington and, and our, uh, our government. Um, it's also uh, good to be back with my buddy Mike Rogers. It's been 24 hours since we were on the platform together. <laughs> and I missed him uh, all day. <clears throat> Mike and I have been dear friends since our days in the house together, and uh, we have shared uh, a few drinks of whiskey every now and then and solved lots of problems uh, between ourselves. Uh, I, 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 wanna, I can't uh, be here with Mike. Um, without saying that uh, I was on the House Intel Committee my last two years in the House, and that was um, a great experience in, in 2001, 2002, a critical time, obviously. Uh, but the relationship between the House Intel Committee and the Senate Intel Committee has not always been the best. Uh, but under the leadership of Mike Rogers and Diane Feinstein, we've made a real dedication to not just making that relationship better, but to making it a very smooth operation between the two committees. We visit regularly, and um, I was talking earlier to a couple of folks about cybersecurity, which is what we were talking about yesterday. The four of us have been talking about cybersecurity and how we're gonna ultimately come out uh, of a conference on a bill for two years now. That's the extent to which we've gone to as bicameral committees, and Mike has done a <clears throat> dear friend, but a great leader, too. I think it's, uh, it's very appropriate that we are here today on the 13th anniversary of September 11. It's one of those seminal moments that all of us remember where we were. Uh, I was the chairman of the House Subcommittee on Intelligence on Terrorism and Homeland Security, and uh, immediately after September 11, my subcommittee was charged with the responsibility of doing the first investigation, and Jane Harmon and I, in a bipartisan way, uh, worked very closely together to produce a report on that. And it kind of set the stage for me with respect to what I was going to be doing for the next 12 years in the Senate. Um, the um, the Al-Qaeda that, that we knew in 2001 was a narrow band of renegades and killers numbered uh, in 2001 when they uh, so brutally attacked us on our homeland, about a thousand fighters. Um, today, Lord knows, we're, um, we're looking at, at thousands and thousands of um, not just Al-Qaeda, but obviously all forms of Al-Qaeda that are scattered around the world that present a greater threat to us today than Al-Qaeda presented in 2001. Um, when the president talked about we have eliminated core Al-Qaeda, well guess what, um, we have now, we've got Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb, we got Al-Qaeda in Iraq, we got Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and just in the last 30 days we've seen the creation or the announcement of uh, Al-Qaeda in, in India and Bangladesh and Burma and other parts of the, that part of the world. So um, we have not struck Al-Qaeda in a way that we're going to have to continue.
continue to fight and continue to strike. Um, we've got to destroy them just like the President has been talking about destroying ISIL. ISIL is uh, not an isolated terrorist group, but they, um, they are the uh, most vicious of the terrorist groups that are out there today as we have seen exhibited on, on uh, TV over the last uh, several months, but particularly the last several weeks. Um, they are committed to a caliphate in the Middle East part of the world that uh, now stretches from Syria into Iraq. They want to stretch that into Jordan and Lebanon and, and into Gaza. Uh, if we don't eliminate their capability by destroying them and killing those individuals, then uh, they may have the capability to do that. And that's why it's so important that we use the only things they recognize and understand, force, deadly force, to counteract them and to destroy them. Uh, with respect to what the President said last night, um, we've been in conversation. Uh, they, they've called Mike, they've called me over the last uh, several days, a couple of weeks, regarding our thoughts and opinions. And I'm very appreciative that the White House has reached out to both sides of the aisle for where they think we need to go with respect to this uh, immediate conflict. And uh, the President didn't answer all the questions last night, but look. This is not a partisan issue, and we've got to, to um, uh, it's not about giving the benefit of the doubt as much as it is joining as Americans to solidify uh, the offensive action that needs to be taken to kill this group of uh, nasty terrorists. So I, I was pleased to hear some things the President said. Obviously, I'd like for him to have been stronger on some things, but just some things he couldn't talk about that are going to happen. The thing that has pleased me the most about this, as Mike and I have been around the world together, talking to our friends in the Arab world, they have always encouraged the United States to do what we're doing. They're pleased to have us in their countries fighting terrorists, uh, but they never really step up to the plate like we needed them to do. Well, the President's put the ball in their court with his comments last night and the strategy that, that he outlined. Uh, so the challenge is there to the Arab world. America's willing to do its part. We'll do more than our part. We always do. But the challenge to the Arab world to, uh, to really come forward and to convert these guys in a forceful way will have more meaning to it than all the action that America can so I'm, um, I'm very encouraged by the fact that the Arab world is joining hands with us in this effort. Our European friends are also joining hands, and um, um, we've got issues there off the battlefield that we're going to have to address. I just got back from a 10-day trip to Europe with several of my colleagues, and one of the issues that we talked to our NATO friends about is the visa waiver program that we have uh, with every one of those countries. And it is a very serious um, situation that we have gotten ourselves into, uh, obviously a very unintended consequence of a program that has worked very well. We used to never have concern about anybody coming to the United States who was a German citizen or a French citizen or uh, from the UK. But today, with all the foreign fighters that are going to Syria, going to Iraq, 
and now coming back to uh, their native lands and having the capability with their British passport, French passport, whatever it may be, of hopping on an airplane and coming to the United States, they're presenting a different threat in that respect than we've ever seen. So we do need to join hands with the president and make sure that we exhibit the right kind of forceful action to destroy ISIS, ISIL. Uh, but at the same time, we need to make sure that we're giving the tools to our intelligence community and our law enforcement community to make sure that they have the capability to keep these bad guys out or if somehow they get by that uh, we're able to monitor them and control them and keep an eye on them while they're here. Uh, we're going to be hopefully debating some of that as we, uh, as we go forward between now and the end of the year. May go into next year, and somebody other than Mike and I will have to uh, be making those decisions. But um, our intelligence community is composed of a lot of brave men and women who are doing a wonderful job. Our military is composed of brave men and women who are doing a wonderful job. But if we don't give them the right kind of support from a policy standpoint, they're not going to be able to continue to do that. So I look forward to um, working with Mike between now and the end of the year to make sure that uh, we continue to accomplish some um, policy matters that keep those tools in place and hopefully give our folks more tools, but to make sure that the table is set as we go forward into this long, enduring uh, fight against ISIL and our other threats out there around the world. Thanks very much for letting me be here. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, I was flattered that Chip Councilman would uh, invite us today of all days, and then I found out when I get here, he would, he just wanted to see if we showed up. If we didn't, he was going to get in the car and go back home. <laughs> so uh, thank you for that. I appreciate it. But thanks to the Ripon Society as well, being part of the dialogue that actually tries to get this town right. Uh, that is so important. It's going to be even more important as we move forward uh, and, and get through some, I think, good, some very tough times. I just wanted to go back for a minute and talk a little bit about uh, some history. When you look at this, and there's so much debate today that I think that we, we, we don't look back far enough to understand how we got here. And we think that because uh, of 9-11 last year was when this fight started uh, with Al-Qaeda or jihadists or extremists. Uh, and it just clearly isn't the case. If you remember the bombing in, in Germany that killed our soldiers that was designed, that was a, a radical jihadist movement in the 1980s. 1993, they tried to blow up the World Trade Center. Remember that? They pulled that, that vehicle down in the basement. Their engineers got it wrong. If they hadn't got it wrong, that building had come down then, too. Uh, and then you look at the, the coal bombing, the East African bombings of the 90s. Uh, the coal bombing uh, happened late 1998, and just a couple of years later, 9-11 happens here on our soil of slaughtered 3,000 Americans. They were at war with us long before we ever noticed as Americans. That was part of the problem. And one of the 9-11 Commission reports said something interesting. Because we never really engaged them, they believed that they could get more and bold. They could do more and bold efforts. They could do something like 9-11. And one of the things that they also said was that we lacked imagination. Because we had bits and pieces of information, but nobody had the imagination to put that information together 
to say somebody's going to, we, we knew they were taking pilot lessons, we knew that they were jihadists, we knew they were committed to acts of terror, acts of violence, but somebody said, you know, we can't quite put it together. Nobody said, you know what, what if they got on our airplanes and flew them into buildings? Nobody had that bit of imagination to put that puzzle together. And so 9-11 happened, and now we fast forward to where we are today. And so when you look at the threat as you see it and notice it today, somebody said, oh, this whole episode of the last decade created all of these new jihadists, created new people to the fight. You know, I'm going to dispute that first for several reasons. The one reason that Al-Qaeda was able to spread its wings, if you recall, Osama bin Laden had to move around a lot. He didn't, couldn't find a home. He was in Africa for a long time, got a little unfriendly, he left. Uh, he, he's been moving around for a long time before his, uh, his uh, demise. Finally, he found a home. He found time and space in Afghanistan. He found a government that was willing to absolutely tolerate him, that was absolutely going to support his efforts, and said, you don't mess with us, we're not going to mess with you. We're busy stoning women in the soccer stadium, summarily executing people who are uh, convicted of adultery. They went back to the Stone Age. They banned all music in Afghanistan. They made it illegal for girls to read. You could not teach your girls to read. This wasn't 50 years ago, 100 years ago. This wasn't 200 years ago. This was in the 90s. The 90s. Matter of fact, when we got there, it was the first uh, congressional delegation of Dave Hobson. We were the first congressional delegation. It was still against the law to teach girls how to read in Afghanistan. And so if we don't kind of take a step back as Americans and maybe pull ourselves out of the Kardashian reality world that we so live in and start understanding who they are and what the threats are, maybe you wouldn't have statements like, my God, it's the 21st century. People don't act like that. I get bad news for you and for America and for the rest of the world. Yes, they do. And what you see happening now with ISIS is you had a group take an opportunity for gaining safe haven in eastern Syria, further radicalizing uh, their individuals, em em uh, employing their harsh version of Sharia law that includes beheadings, cutting hands off, summary executions, burning churches, killing Christians, killing people of, of the Muslim faith who don't agree with their version of the Muslim faith. <coughs> And they took that opportunity to grow. They, they found oil refinery, took over oil refineries, and were able to sell it on the black market, a million bucks a day. We think they have a billion dollars in cash and precious metals to sustain their operations. Once they got strong enough, they go over the berm, now they're in Iraq. And so some notion we can call any of these teams JV, or any of these teams, or these Al-Qaeda operations, as less than serious, is a serious mistake. And we're getting ready to make that mistake again. I'm very, very proud of the president, candidly, that he decided to change his path. He stood up last night and said, all right, we have to do something about it. That's a good start. It's a good day. I'm with Saxby, who has been, by the way, a great leader in the United States Senate on these issues. I'm, he's, he's very humble as the Southern, gentle, uh, the Southern gentleman, uh, as you would expect. Uh, but he has been very key in all of those authorization bills, all of the cyber fight that we had, and all of this comedy that we've been able to find between the House and the Senate. He has been a leader and really the point man for a lot of that. So thank you for doing that, Zach. I really appreciate it. Uh, and what is that saying? Thanks for doing it. Now get out. <laughs> Still after you did a radio show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
So I just hope we take a second to stand back, and I'll tell you why we do that. Because for those of us who study national security issues and spend all of our time doing this and reading on it and understanding the threats, there's about 20, well, 21 now, with this new announcement about Al-Qaeda, about this uh, uh, new Al-Qaeda affiliate in India. And we think that's just to get them on the board. Remember, they're a little jealous that ISIS is getting all the attention. So some notion that ISIS is more brutal than them. Remember, they slit people's throats to overtake an airplane to fly them into buildings. Pretty hard to argue who's more brutal in my mind, or you would be less brutal or more tolerable than one organization over the other. And so what you have is this, this competition now, by the way, between Al-Qaeda saying, hey, we got to get on the board here so that we can show the rest of the world that we're still an Al-Qaeda, excuse me, the strongest jihadist organization. You have ISIS holding ground, calling the caliphate, recruiting <coughs> foreigners. Now they have recruiting offices around the world. They have recruiting offices around the world. They have pamphlets made up recruiting jihadists from all over the world to come and fight and be a part of the caliphate. And when they show up, a lot of them have Western passports. So when we look at this and you see what's happened even over the last year, where American politics, I think we got so soft, so removed from this threat, that we decide, oh, well, the NSA must be a bad and horrible organization. You know, the, the whole reason some of these programs got put in place after 9-11 is we did a pretty thorough bipartisan study and said, what did we miss? What pieces of this puzzle were missing that would allow us to miss 3,000, somebody to be able to kill 19 people, killing 3,000 One of them was a phone call from a safe house overseas, an Al-Qaeda safe house, to San Diego said, hey, operation is a go. We missed it. Why? Because we didn't want to have those kind, of, those kind of communications from a foreign country and a foreigner into the United States. So think about the debate we've had in the last year. Well, we got to get out of Afghanistan. They're gaining ground. Now, uh, the Taliban is gaining ground. And with that comes Al-Qaeda. We're saying, let's dismantle our ability for the NSA to track foreigners overseas and even watch a phone call from a foreigner overseas into the United States. We have thousands of individuals who have Western passports who are coming home. Somebody overseas is going to pick up the phone and call them. Do we really want to be blind in that circumstance? Do we? But America, the debate, the political debate is, oh, that's, I don't know, I'm not sure I'm going to take the time to understand that problem. It sounds kind of hard, and maybe they might call me. And this notion is ridiculous. And so what we worry about, I know I worry about, is this threat is as real as it's ever been. Out of the 20, now 21 Al-Qaeda affiliates, over half of them have pledged some affiliation to ISIS because they believe that they have to get in on this notion of a caliphate. Which now you have an organization that's big and strong and well-financed, you have this dabbling of these Al-Qaeda affiliates around the world who are saying, well, maybe they're the ones. I'm not sure. I still pledge allegiance to Al-Qaeda, but I want to at least express my support. It means you plug into their logistical nodes and their ability to conduct operations. And now you worry why Saxby's only 25 years old. Look what this job has done. <laughs> now you know what happens when we sit in those dark rooms and go through all poor over all of this intelligence. This is, the threat is as serious, I think, as I've ever seen it. And I really don't think America is ready for, in the place to debate the real threat so that we can meet this threat with reasonable expectations uh, and using America's diplomatic and soft power and military power to bring this thing, these things to a conclusion and disrupt their activities enough that we can keep them <coughs> out of the city. 
uh, it, it is to me a, uh, I mean, a, a critical time. And I just want to tell this last quick story. Because on that trip to Afghanistan with Dave Hobson, I asked to go down to, there was a children's hospital in Kabul. And so I went down to that hospital. Uh, and it was in, you can imagine, pretty rough shape. The Indian government had run it. When the Taliban took over, they pulled out, just took everything with them. And so this hospital was, uh, had no air conditioning, uh, no HVAC at all. Uh, and for their infectious diseases ward, what they would do is close the windows and close the door to stop the spread to the rest of the hospital. So when they opened that door to give us the tour, you can imagine it, uh, there, it was A, overcrowded, B, they had no nurses because they wouldn't allow their women to be nurses, right? You can't have that. So they sent them home and the Taliban took over. Uh, so they had parents, mothers, who were there trying to take care of their kids in a closed room about half this size, with about 45 people in it, all of them sick. It was the most god-awful thing I had ever seen. And the woman who met me at the door was running it, was a doctor, trained in the United States. When the fighting started, she, she had been, uh, uh, let me back up, when the Taliban got there, they sent her home. She's a, a trained orthopedic surgeon. They sent her home and said, you can't do that here in Afghanistan under the Taliban. She goes home. Six years later, she hears the, the uh, bombing start. She walks out. She takes off, of, off her burqa. She walks nine miles uh, through some pretty tough territory without her burqa, gets to the hospital, and she said, I knew I had to be here because this is where I could do the most good. So she was the one giving me this tour in this hospital. So we get up, and by the way, each hospital bed had more than one child in it because they didn't have enough hospital beds. So you can imagine, they don't have any way to clean the sheets. They don't, I mean, this, this is not a place that was, uh, you, you might make it there, you might not make it out. And I asked her at the end of it after she gave me this tour, and we were up in the ward where the children had just had surgery, so amputations and other things. And I asked her, I said, Do you, is this important for the United States to be here? Uh, and I'll never forget it because she turned and she put her hand on my shoulder and said, yesterday I had to amputate the arm and a leg of a young boy that stepped on a Soviet mine. Their parents threw him in a, a cart with a donkey. Uh, it took them two days to get him to the hospital. They kept him alive. She said, I didn't have the right anesthetic. An anesthetic. Uh, I didn't even have the right medical tools. But if it isn't for the United States, none of us will have a chance at life. Neither will we. You can still hear the bombing in the, uh, in the mountain ranges in the, in the distance. So think about what America is getting ready to do today. The president even announced it last night. I liked a lot of what he said except that he's going to end the war in Afghanistan. We have asked these women to come out of the back of their houses, to take their burkas off, to join society, so that they could temper this problem of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda coming back. And we are going to pull out, like we just pulled out of Iraq. And the difference between Iraq and Afghanistan is Afghanistan will happen in about one one-hundredth of the time. We will slaughter thousands of women who had the courage to stand up for something bigger than themselves. Democracy, engagement, temperament. I hope that America stops for a minute and shakes themselves out of this notion that we are warrior. Less than 3% of the population has ever even been asked to do anything in the war. Right? You didn't have to give up sugar. You didn't have to give up your tires. You didn't have to stop eating eggs. Didn't have to stop. We didn't ration flour. We did all that in this country one time. Those people were wounded. They had to give up a lot of their lives in order to win the fight. We have to give up a little Kardashian TV 
right? If, that, if that's who we have become, then we will suffer the problem of terrorism for generations to come. I hope this is our moment. I hope this is the president's moment. I know Saxby and I and Diane Feinstein, Dutch Rupersberger, are going to go through the details, at least on our space on this on this plan, to get this right. I hope America rallies around, candidly, the president, bucks him up a little bit. We, we do this together, Republicans and Democrats, and say we're not going to tolerate this. We won't tolerate the spread of radical jihad, uh, jihadism around the world, and we will not tolerate them threatening the United States in any way, wherever we find if we don't, you're going to have this conversation with two more members next year on the 9-11 day wondering why this is taking so long. Anyway, with that uplifting note, let's go get some of that whiskey. <laughs> time for questions. Let's open it up. Anyone? Yes, Ann. Uh, Ann Canfield. Uh, I watched an interview with uh, Islamic leaders that's living in Belgium, and he said that over, I forgot the number of years, but over the next number of years in the future, that over 50% of the citizens in Belgium would be Muslim. And so, I, it, I mean, and they hope to impose Sharia law there. And so I wondered, what are your observations about Europe? Because that's really changed and changing. Well, I was in Belgium uh, on our first stop uh, on the recent Codel that we took and visiting uh, General Breedla, General Lute, and uh, the other leadership at NATO. And uh, this is a real problem all over Europe. Muslims are the fastest growing population in a number of countries like France, the UK, and, and uh, in Belgium. And uh, obviously the, the more um, uh, of that population you get, you know, I have to remember that 99% of Muslims are the right-thinking kind of people. But it doesn't take many of them to really wreak havoc in any country. And in, a, in most European countries, um, there is um, the opportunity that uh, we don't necessarily have in the United States for jihadism to be created. Uh, there are a lot more radical imams in that part of the world than we see over here. Um, there is a free flow in Europe between all the European Union. There's no need for a visa or a passport. You can go wherever you want to go. Uh, so uh, there's a, um, a definite trend, not just towards an increase in, in Muslim population, but in that small percentage of jihadists, there's, there's also uh, a very trend towards seeing that increase. Now, I, I don't know about, about the projections on um, what the population in Belgium, which is a very small country to start with, may be. But uh, let me tell you, there is a, an active group of jihadists within that community, within that part of the world, that is very capable today, and they're just going to get stronger. So our European friends are now understanding that they've got to do a better job of monitoring those folks and trying to make sure that, um, at least from a public standpoint, that um, uh, jihadists are not able to recruit and train right under the nose of their law enforcement agencies. I just hope it works for them because it, it, that's those folks who have the ability to come to the United States once they are radicalized. Okay. 
thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, thank you for your fine analysis. You said earlier today the President's plan requires some uh, affirmative action on the part of Congress. What, what does that mean and is that conceivable? Well, I think that it's the, uh, the Congressional responsibility to be affirmative because it does go out beyond the bounds of the authorization to use military force that was established in Iraq. You're talking to another country. Uh, and this is hard. I hope Congress shows its strength here. It shows America that we can do hard things. We should affirm what the President talked about last night. So we're either going to, we're going to have to do some language for the, fun, the funding portion. Uh, I happen to believe we should also do an, an outright affirmative uh, affirmation of what he's doing. Give the Congressional approval for him to do this. I think it does a couple of things. It shows America, yes, this is serious. Uh, it shows the rest of the world, yes, America is finally serious. Uh, and it shows our enemy that we're, this, we're taking it soon, which means you know, someone will knock on your door real soon. Uh, and I think without that, we lose our coalition partners' commitment in a way that I think should, that, that should be at the level it should be. Uh, you know, I love my NATO uh, partners, but they need a little, uh, you know, a little encouragement. Uh, and I think this can give that encouragement for them to help and participate in this. And by the way, they are likely to be the first receiving end of these Westerners going home. You know, it's likely to be easier to get that first strike in Europe than it is to even the United States. And that's why we, this coalition building is going to mean something. And this affirmation by Congress shows that we're serious and we can do hard things and work together. I think you may have I totally agree, and I think uh, I think there may be some requirements um, for participation in training under Title Ten that does require congressional approval, and uh, we should give that to the administration and allow them to move forward on that. And, uh, it's not going to be without some heavy debate, but I think it should be done. Oh, I would not agree with that. Visa waiver program and the fact that that it makes it easier, all these passports to come to the U.S. without visa. Is there contemplation of changing that, or do, is the view that the TSA and our passport people, when you come in this country, just use more vigilance? Well, we do a very good job today of uh, putting uh, the bad guys that we know about on no-fly lists, and uh, even if they hold American passports, if they're out of the country and get on the no-fly list, they can't get back into the States. But uh, there's always the potential for somebody slipping through the crack. Now, should we change visa waiver? I don't know. But I do think that this is a time in, in our history when we ought to review that policy. Uh, our European friends are uh, very close associates, and they truly are our friends for the most part. But uh, when somebody gets radicalized in Europe and has the ability to come to the United States, you better believe those extremists are recruiting them because they know they have the ability to come to the United States. Um, so we've got to be ever more vigilant with respect to uh, the no-fly list and keeping bad guys out of the country. Uh, but at the same time, I think it presents that opportunity. We need to review that program and see if any kind of changes need to be made or additional tools given if they need. One of the things we've done after 9-11, I think we have done a better job about uh, 
establishing our homeland security in a way that can help try to catch some bad folks coming in. The problem with this particular case is even if they'll tell you, yeah, we, we know X number of folks with U.S. passports, and we'll do everything we can to make sure that when they come back, uh, they'll, they'll get a, a welcome. The, the problem is that they're using cut-up countries to get into the country. So you may fly somewhere in Europe and end up in country X, and from country X, you get overland transported into Syria. That part we wouldn't know if you didn't have monitor. Now, U.S. citizens have a higher legal uh, standard for surveillance, rightly so. Nobody's saying that we should change that. But that creates a huge gap in our ability to know. So if you're talking somewhere between three and 7,000 Western passport holders, you can start getting nervous in a hurry knowing that we probably don't know all three to 7,000 people. And we're not sure if that's a light number or a heavy number. Many in the intelligence community believe it's a light number. We think that number is getting bigger. Which, by the way, why quick action has to happen. If you want to stop that pipeline of recruiting, you have to take action right now. We need to make sure that this does not look like Disneyland to anyone uh, who's sitting in Cleveland wondering if that whole jihad thing looks kind of like a good idea. We need to nip that in the bud right now. That is a concern. And other countries, by the way, have different privacy rights and requirements that might not track their travels in, a, in the same way that other countries might in Europe. And you know, Canada is a great example. They have just a different cultural approach to that issue. And once you get into Canada, you know, you're a bridge, you know, you're, you're, a, you're a toll uh, away from getting back into the, getting into the United States without a visa, without a government check, without anything. And they might not have any idea in the world that you had been in Syria or Iraq. Uh, that's, that is the challenge that we have, and that's why those of us who are saying, if this is an urgent problem, we need to get in front of uh, why we're encouraged that the President has got that last time. Pam Cedarholm. About a month ago, the 9-11 Commission uh, issued a, a report, a summary report, about a 35-page update on where we are you know, uh, today after the first report was issued, and basically, what it, the bottom line was is they thought that we were on September 10th right now. And I just wonder your comments about that. Oh, look at the time. <laughs> um, here's the, and I, I understand what they're saying. I think we're better positioned. Here's the problem. Again, you have these 20 affiliates around the country. And by the way, somebody said, oh, we didn't ever have 20 affiliates. Trust me, they were there. They had different names. They had different mission sets. So we should stop this argument about when they got here. I, I think it's a complete waste of time. They were there. They were committed to political uh, jihad. Uh, now they just expanded it to, to against the West. And so you have 20, 21 now groups. Uh, they all have an interest at some level of committing an act of terror against foreigners. Some have the capability to do it locally and nowhere else. Some have the aspiration to do it in the West. All of them have the aspiration to do it here. And so what I think they're saying is, are we configured in the right way to get the best information to protect us in a way that I think we would be able to sleep better at night? I, I argue the answer is no. Uh, because we've engaged in this, uh, an ideology that wants to pull back, you know, that you can't put a nice face on terrorist disruption activity. It's, it's, that's a hard end of this business. You can't put a nice face on that. It is what it is. They're cutting people's heads off. You can imagine you're not going to sit down and 
have a cup of tea with them and talk it over. Right? That's just not going to happen. And so are we configured exactly right in Africa, in the Middle East, and other places in, in Southeast Asia to make sure that we're doing it exactly right and try to remove any chance that we might have a terrorist attack? I would argue we can do a better job. And I think that's what they're talking about. You might want to think about this, this configuration so that we can try to handle this problem. Nothing's perfect. You want to get as close to never making a mistake as you possibly can. And I think they're saying, and I would agree with them, we're not quite there yet. And I don't think there's anything in that report, Mike, or I either one would disagree with. We, we understand that the world is more dangerous today than it was in 2001. Uh, if nothing else, by virtue of the sheer numbers, in the last five years, the State Department has designated 20 groups as terrorist groups. Uh, and those are just new ones. Uh, and, and that's added to the list of dozens of others that were already on the terrorist list. So uh, just the sheer numbers make the world a much more dangerous place today. Fred, and then Mr. Brown. We hope and expect that countries in the Arabian Peninsula will send troops to help uh, address this issue. culture in that part of the world uh, is different from the standpoint of anything, uh, uh, not just in the United States, but in any other part of the world. And uh, it's something that's very difficult for Americans to understand. If you're, if you're asking Muslims to go to fight other Muslims, uh, you've got an uphill battle uh, just from the start. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that this group named ISIL is different from any other group of terrorists that we've seen. Uh, they do want to establish a caliphate in, in the Middle East part of the world, which means Sharia law, uh, not just violent activity, but again, those, those women who have gained all these rights over the last several years, as Mike said, would immediately lose those rights, and uh, children all of a sudden won't be going to school again. Um, and. Um, I think there is a large segment of the Arab world that does not want to revert to, to that type of system that they have been living under in some countries. So uh, I think there's more inclination on their part today to join the fight. Uh, they know that it's their backyard and they've got more to lose than anybody else. Uh, but they've never really been challenged to step up to the plate. That's what I was pleased to see the president do last night. Give them that challenge and say, we're going to be there. We're going to provide leadership. But uh, you've got to come to the fight and join us. And we need them to be the boots on the ground. We've got lots of assets we bring from an air power, from an intelligence, from a logistics standpoint. Um, but we need them in the fight in a big way. And it's their opportunity to do so. And I know. Um, uh, we've been briefed on the behind-the-scenes negotiations, and I'm encouraged about where we are. Uh, but we'll just have to see what happens over the next uh, several weeks. And 
agreed. You know, they when they went into Mosul, when ISIS went into Mosul, they took some of the leaders that they thought were not going to be compliant, chopped their heads off, and put it on spikes. You know, in the old, they call that motivation uh, for those other uh, uh, Arab leaders in those other countries. They have no respect for law for anything other than their very strict interpretation of their Islamic faith. And that is not consistent with the rulers of those other Arab League countries. So they get it, and I, I think uh, Saxby's right. I'm, I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing. I think they know that they have as much to lose in this as anyone. I think they're eager to try to put the, you know, disrupt the success of the Because they're also recruiting for their countries, too, by the way, and those people are going to and it's easier to get there for those countries. And so they have that problem, and they understand that's a problem for them. I think they want to get on with this as fast and quickly as they can. David Brown, last question. You all have a long track record working across the aisle to overcome the gridlock and actually get important legislation through. As you all uh, wrap up your careers on the Hill, what advice or guidance do you have for your successors? It was pretty easy in the Senate because, for the most part, you still can't um, do anything other than get a, a nominee uh, to the bench or to the administration through without getting 60 votes. And uh, neither one of us have those 60 votes, so it's imperative that you work across the aisle on that. And, um, you know, I think our two committees are a good example of the positive things that can happen when reasonable Republicans and reasonable Democrats sit down together and uh, uh, check our, our partisan hats at the door and agree that we've got a goal that has to be accomplished and we've got to just talk through our differences and, and reach that goal. Um, and I know there are, uh, there are lots of Democrats that have good ideas, there are lots of Republicans that have good ideas. Nobody has a patent on all of that, so uh, I'm... Um, I'm looking forward to see what the makeup of the next Congress is going to be. I'm encouraged about where we are on the Senate side right now, but you know we're we're we got 54 days to go, and a lot can happen there. But I think with the right leadership at the top, you will see more bipartisan efforts in the Senate for sure. Yeah, you know it's it takes work. I mean, we've had uh, we've all four gotten together. I don't want people to think we could close the door and giggle and come to an agreement. Some of these have been fairly uh, emotional and heated discussions on how we come to the right goal. But at the end of it, it was done. It was an issue we had to get through. We, had, we came to it with philosophical differences with the same goal, and we worked it out in every issue. I don't think we had one that we couldn't quite finally get there. Uh, but it takes that commitment to sit down and understand uh, that, you, that we have a goal. We have to, if you don't accomplish the mission, talking about it for 100 meetings means nothing. And so we all came to that agreement earlier uh, that we were going to do that, and national security was too important. Uh, but there is that outside influence on, on Congress uh, that says if you sit down with uh, someone who believes of something a little different from yourself, that that is somehow some violation of your oath and your, and your credibility uh, and your principles. And you know, I say nonsense. This is a place where you bring your principles to the table and you work out to the best of your ability to get something move forward. We need to get back to that. Uh, we need to have more people come here with the notion that they want to help solve a problem versus just tell you no to a problem. Uh, and unfortunately, there's been a lot of political profit made
from being against everything. Being, uh, if, you're, if, if you want uh, $80 in cuts, they won't support you unless you get 81. If you give them 81, they really meant 85. And it's unfortunate. And it, I think it's disrupted the Senate activities. I think it's disrupted the House. And I think it's disrupted governance as we know in America. And we are paying a price for that internationally. We don't get to do this in a vacuum. The world does watch the United States. So I hope that you have leaders like Saxby, like Diane Feinstein, like Dutch Ruppersberger who show up and understand, yep, yeah, we're allowed to disagree. You know, I'm gonna, I always say I'm an old Reagan Republican. I'll take eight, the 80% deal and I'll get up tomorrow and work for the other 20%. We, we lost that somewhere. Uh, and I think we've, we're gonna have to get back to it. And I think the only way that's gonna happen is the American public pushes Congress to do it. Because the environment now is you have to disagree with everything that no, no person of the other party has a good idea on anything ever. Uh, and if you say it's blue, I gotta say it's red. That is really not helpful. Uh, and it's, I don't know how long it's been there, maybe a few years. It seems to be getting worse. Uh, but in a case like this, and we travel overseas <coughs> and meet with our foreign leaders, it shows, and it's wearing on the rest of the world. And people are starting to ask questions if America is gonna make it. When you get those questions overseas, I don't know about you, I get a lump in my think that on our watch, we're going to let the greatest nation on the face of the earth, who's been such the greatest force for good, just go away, melt away in the mediocrity. Boy, I don't think we can do that. But again, it's going to take all of us. It takes organizations like this who believe in sitting down and having dialogue uh, and imparting that on members of Congress that it's okay to sit down and negotiate and get a settlement that where you don't get everything. There's my unpaid political advertising. <laughs> Senator Saxby, Chairman Mike, uh, thank you both for your time this morning, your insightful remarks, and, and for giving us a lot of reassurance as to where we're going on so much of this. This is, this is tough stuff. I mean, and there's so much information out there that we're all picking up at different points, and, and, and you guys really kind of brought it all together. We, we know how much both of you love our country. And on behalf of the Ripon Society, we'd like to present you with Smithsonian's new book, The History of America and 101 uh, Objects, with our sincere thanks. And we hope that once you leave, you'll come back and give us some more insightful thoughts on where this country is going. Again, we know how much you love it. And, and I hope you will not go away far, because uh, you have a lot of friends in this town, and you'll continue to have a lot of friends. Please join me in thanking you.